Well, this week we continue with Matthew chapter 24, um, and as we pointed out last week, uh, the disciples asked Jesus two questions. Last week we answered the first question, this week we will answer the second question. We're in Matthew chapter 24, looking at verses 36 through 51. Uh, Incidentally, the theme here that we're beginning will continue all the way through Matthew chapter 25. Uh, But we're looking at it as Jesus presents it here at the end of Matthew 24. Hear the word of the Lord. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all the way, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions, but... If that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we desire to be ready, that you would make us ready. Please begin or continue that process by unveiling this passage for us, that we might see Christ, glorify him, and be confident in your grace and your mercy to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, an only child teenager is left home while his parents get away to celebrate their wedding anniversary. And this young man decides to have a party filled with alcohol and whatever else might be associated with a party like that. And his parents are supposed to arrive home on Sunday afternoon giving him plenty of time to clean the house and to put everything back in order when, of course, his parents come early in the morning, finding the house in shambles and their son asleep. 
In our passage this morning, Jesus wants us to know that like this young man in our story, we should not count on having time to clean ourselves up before his return. In fact, if we even prefer the pleasures and the promises of this world over waiting for him in holiness and righteousness, this message is a warning meant to cause us to fall down in repentance, confession of sin, and to plead for his infinite mercy and grace. Not just to be forgiven, but grace that would make us into the kind of person who would actually prefer waiting patiently with joy and expectation for Jesus' return rather than to indulge the pleasures of this world because there really are only two kinds of people. Those who are alive in the kingdom of heaven, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, longing for his return, and those who are not. And Jesus wants us to consider which one we are. So to unpack these ideas, here's our outline uh, for this morning. First, we're going to look at the fact that the return of Christ will be unexpected. Therefore, stay awake. And finally, what it is like to be awake. So first, the return of Christ will be unexpected. Well, if you weren't here with us last week, or if you were... Uh, we saw that this chapter, uh, Jesus is answering two separate questions posed to him by his disciples. The first question was about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and their question was, when will these things be, referring to that event? And Jesus answers that question by describing what life will be like for them from the moment they ask the question until the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. And then he goes on, Uh, to give them a specific sign to look for so that they would know when the temple is about to be destroyed so they'll have time to flee from Judea safely. And he concludes this way. He says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So the signs he's just described leading up to and including the destruction of the temple in 70 AD will be so clear and so evident to the disciples that they're going to be able to track those signs the same way you can track summer coming by the new growth on a fig tree. And when they see all these things, they're going to know that the end is near, and truly that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And as we know, Jesus' words did come true. History records uh, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It happened within a generation, exactly as Jesus predicted it would. And then our passage now, Jesus proceeds to answer the second question, which is, And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
Now, the disciples use a very specific word for coming here. This is the Greek word parousia. And it's, it's not the generic word for coming in the New Testament. It's a word that means presence or appearing. And in the context of Matthew 24, it's a word that always refers to Jesus' second coming. They're asking for a sign so that they'll know and they can be prepared for the time when he comes and he appears again and they experience his presence with them. The next time Jesus uses this word is in verse 27, when again talking about his second coming. He says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the parousia, or the coming, the presence, the appearing of the Son of Man. And then this same word is used twice in our passage for today. Again, clearly referring to Jesus' second coming. He goes on, But... Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the parousia of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the parousia of the Son of Man. So this is one of the ways we know that Jesus is now answering their second question. They asked about the parousia, and now he's specifically answering their question using the exact same word that they used. Another reason we know that he's now answering their second question is because he says, but concerning that day and hour. So before, he was talking about these things. The disciples asked, when will these things be? He responds by saying, well, when you see these things, you'll know the end is near. This generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. And now he's talking about that day. He's done talking about these things. He's moved on to that day. And his answer to the disciples' question is very simple. That day, there will be no sign. When Jesus comes at his parousia, we won't be able to track the signs like you can track the coming of summer with the new growth on the fig tree. It's going to be unexpected. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say even he does not know the day or the hour. Which is a strange thing for Jesus to say because Jesus is God. And as God, Jesus knows absolutely everything. The writer of the Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the one who is holding together the universe every moment by the word of his power. Which means when he was a baby inside Mary's womb, he was still holding together the universe by the word of his power. When he was sleeping, every moment he walked the face of the earth, he was holding together the universe by the word of his power because Jesus never stopped being God. But he did become a human. And when he did, he became like us in every way. Which means as a human, he had a human mind, a human will, human desires and needs for food and for sleep. And since he is a human, sometimes as a human, his mind his human mind did not know things. So as a human, even Jesus did not know when he would return. 
In fact, when he does return, it's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah. It's going to catch everyone unaware. Christians, of course, will be safe inside the ark of Christ, right? Our faith that unites us to Christ makes us safe. But at his second coming, we will all be eating and drinking and marrying and living our lives when all of a sudden, like lightning flashing across the sky, Jesus will return. And notice, Jesus doesn't compare that day when he returns to how evil things were in the days of Noah, right? Because that would be a sign. His comparison is about how unaware the people were in the days of Noah. We know this because Jesus drives the same point home with his next illustration. He says, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Now, many people have debated whether being taken here is a good thing or a bad thing. Some say the one being taken is taken in judgment. Others suggest the one being taken here is the one being saved from judgment. I don't know. It could be either one. But it shouldn't matter. Jesus' point is that when he appears at the end of the age, it will be so unexpected that both the righteous and the wicked are going to be shoulder to shoulder doing the exact same task when all of a sudden, poof, Jesus comes back. Jesus mentions one being taken and one being left not to highlight who's going where, but to highlight the fact that both the righteous and the wicked will be engaged in ordinary tasks living their lives totally unaware when he returns. So the question is, why is Jesus emphasizing so much the fact that his return is going to be totally unexpected? Why is he doing that? And the reason is so that you and I will spend absolutely Zero energy speculating about it. This is why the modern evangelical obsession with the end times is concerning. It's actually the very thing Jesus is hoping to avoid by telling us that no one knows the day or the hour, not even him. Instead, he wants us to concentrate our time and energy and efforts on staying awake and being ready for him to return unexpectedly at any moment, which takes us to our second point. Therefore, stay awake. So Jesus carefully states there will be no sign of his second coming. It will happen when we're all unaware, like the days of Noah, we'll just be eating and drinking, marrying, giving into marriage. Two men will be out in the field. One's going to be taken, another's going to be left, just like that. His conclusion is, therefore, this is the inference now from everything he said, therefore, stay awake for or because you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Here, Jesus tells us exactly why He's not going to give us a sign. No one knows the day or the hour. It's going to happen when we're all unaware. One will be taken, another will be left. Therefore, look for the secret code in the Bible and be the one to figure it out. No. (laughs) 
absolutely not. He says, therefore, stay awake because you don't know what day of the Lord is coming. And implied in that is, if we don't stay awake, we will miss him. Or to put it more bluntly, if you're not staying awake, we're not a Christian even if we think we are. Jesus is warning us not to spend our time trying to figure out when he's coming back because we could actually be lulled to sleep by that. There's going to be all these signs before he comes. Surely I have more time to sin. No, Jesus is telling us this, so we'll be content not knowing when he's coming back so that instead we will spend our efforts staying awake. That means we're not waiting for a secret rapture. We're not waiting for the seven-year tribulation period. We're not waiting for the Antichrist to come. We're not waiting for the last days. The New Testament is clear. We're in the last days right now. We've been in the last days ever since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Listen to the Apostle John in the first century, writing to the people he's pastoring. He says this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Since the moment Jesus ascended into heaven, we've been in the last hour. The Antichrist has already come. In fact, many Antichrists have come, which means the coming of the Antichrist is also not a sign that we're waiting for. The writer of the Hebrews begins his letter this way, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, again, writing in the first century, he has spoken to us by his Son. So we're in the last days. We're not waiting for the temple to be rebuilt. In the New Testament, Christians, the church, we are the temple of the living God. And yes, the last days will be full of evil, but all we have to do is look over the events of the last 2,000 years to see clearly these last days have been full of evil. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Jesus goes on, another illustration. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So if someone intends to rob our house, we can rest assured they are not going to call us and schedule an appointment. He is going to come when we least expect it. Therefore, if the threat is real, we ought to stay awake all night if we have to, to catch him. We must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour we do not expect. So Jesus, again, is talking to his disciples here, but he's obviously now talking to every Christian throughout time up until the moment he does return, and he's telling us we must stay awake, we must be ready, and the obvious implication is if we're not ready, we will miss him. So what does it look like to be awake and ready for his return? 
Well, I began this morning uh, by describing a young man throwing a party while his parents were gone, and they come home, and they discover the house exactly as their son left it the night before, and him sleeping. But what if this young man had decided, oh, I don't want that to happen, so I'm going to stay up all night, and I'm going to clean up the party. That way, even if my parents do come home early, everything's going to be good to go. Is that what Jesus means by staying awake and being ready? Is Jesus saying, live however you want, but just make sure to clean yourself up in time afterward? Sin all you want, just get to church on Sunday. But keep your fingers crossed that he, does, that he doesn't come while you're having the party. No. To make our analogy closer to what Jesus is saying here, what would happen is that this young man would stay up all night cleaning and then his parents wouldn't even come the next day. Or the next day. Or the next day or the next weekend or the weekend after that or the weekend after that. And pretty soon, pretty soon he's going to decide to throw another party and then another party and then another party. And then he's going to be throwing parties all the time, not even bothering to clean up because the delay reveals the kind of person we really are inside. Time will tell if we're the kind of person who loves the pleasures and promises of this world or if we're really looking forward to Jesus coming back. We won't stay awake if we're just afraid of getting caught or we're just afraid of the consequences. Eventually, those motivations will collapse over time. Now, staying awake, waiting for Jesus, means we're the kind of person who longs for him to return. Someone who is truly awake is more like a bride waiting for her wedding day. Someone who is truly awake is more like the family waiting for their annual family vacation. Someone who is truly awake is experiencing joy and expectation and pleasure at the thought of Jesus coming back. The sin and suffering of this world leads them to pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. To get back to our analogy, someone who is staying awake wouldn't even consider throwing a party like that while his parents were gone for a night or even a whole year. He would rather honor his parents. He would rather take care of the house and do his chores. He would rather stay sober because he loves his parents, and he would rather be found faithful when they return. The Apostle Paul describes those waiting for Christ's return this way. He says, So then let us not sleep, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But we, but since we belong to the day, notice he's talking about the kind of person we are, right? We're the kind of person who belongs to the day. Let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Those who are wearing the breastplate of faith and love and those who hope in this salvation that's been granted to them in Christ are those who belong to the day. They love the light. They love holiness and righteousness. They love sobriety and their heart is set with joy on Christ's return. 
The psalmist puts it this way. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. And a watchman waiting for the morning. What happens in the morning? Well, his service is over. His labor is complete. And now he can finally rest. As we sang earlier, Christ is our hope in life and death. The writer of the Hebrews describes Christians as those who are eagerly waiting for his return. He says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, and not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So we'll face judgment one day. Either Christ will return or or we'll die, which could happen unexpectedly as well. And when he returns, he's not going to deal with sin because he's already dealt with sin. Next time when he comes, he's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So with that in mind, let's get back to our passage where Jesus describes the two different kinds of people. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So the one who is awake and ready is the one who is faithful and wise. He's been called and appointed by his master to serve the household. He's been called to work humbly, make sure that everybody has their food at the proper time. And that is what he'll be doing when his master comes. And then Jesus says he will receive a reward for his faithfulness. Jesus will give him even more privileges and more responsibilities. So yes, 1,000%, the one who is awake is the one who is faithful and obedient. But he's not faithful and obedient because he's trying to earn a place in the master's household. He's been granted that place as a gift of grace. He's not faithful and obedient out of dread and fear of punishment, although he has a proper awe and respect and fear of the Lord. But he loves his master. He loves his work. He's eagerly waiting for his return. He wants to be found faithful when his master returns. And then Jesus describes the one who is not ready this way. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So notice Jesus builds this wicked servant on top of his description of the faithful servant. The wicked servant is someone who for a time did serve the household, giving them their food. But if that servant is actually wicked, if he desires to be cruel and ruthless and to indulge himself in the pleasures of this world, because that's what his heart really wants anyway, He can only hold out so long before giving in to those desires. 
right? The, the delay gives this servant time to prove who he actually is. And notice this is also a servant. He's a member of the master's household. We might even call him a professed believer, someone who claims to know and love God. But his master's delay exposes what's really inside his heart. Pretty soon he's no longer worried what might happen to him if he's caught. His master's delay leads him to believe he can get away with his sin one more time. Which means he never really loved his master. He never really longed to please his master. He's not waiting for the Lord like a watchman, waiting for the morning. He's not putting his hope in the word of God. So eventually he begins doing what his heart wants to do anyway. And that's when his master comes, when he least expects it. He's judged as a hypocrite, someone who professed to be a servant in the household of God, but really wasn't. And then he's cut into pieces, which should kill him. But because Jesus is talking about eternal punishment here, after he's cut into pieces, he's put in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And some have speculated, is Jesus being literal here? I don't know. All I know is that whatever the punishment is like, it's going to be at least as bad as being cut into pieces and weeping and gnashing our teeth. So Jesus is saying that there are only two kinds of people. There's the righteous and the wicked. And the righteous belong to the day. They're eagerly waiting his return. They're waiting for the Lord, hoping in his word. There are those who love God and who are longing for the day when Jesus returns. And as they wait, they serve faithfully. They hate their sin. They cling to Jesus and his promises. And the wicked are those who love this world and the things of this world. They don't want Jesus to return. Maybe they don't want to go to hell. So sometimes they try to be good and clean themselves up after the party before their parents come home, but they're willing to risk it. Drink in the pleasures and the promises of this world, thinking that because Jesus hasn't returned yet, there's still time for one more, one more peek at that website, one more day of ignoring the poor. Maybe they even imagine there'll be a chance to make things right with God before they die. After all, God will forgive them, right? But Jesus came to save us from our sins. Which does mean he came to forgive us. But it means so much more. It means he came to save us from believing that anything in this life is better than knowing Christ. Being saved from our sins means being transformed by grace through faith into the faithful, wise servant. Jesus is telling us, this is the evidence you've been really saved from your sin. Salvation means being born again. That means being given a new heart new desires, new affections. It's becoming a new creation who loves God from the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, and we're blessed because God and Christ gives us a new heart as a free gift of grace through faith. It's those who build their life on the rock, which is Christ, who will be able to stand when the floods come. It's those who are good soil, 
who produce a crop 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown, who are alive in the kingdom of heaven, and they experience life in the kingdom of heaven as a treasure in a field that's worth selling everything for to go and buy the field. It's being a good tree that produces good fruit. Notice this is all references back to the book of Matthew. So are we awake? Are we ready? Are we praying, come, Lord Jesus, come? You see, when we come to Christ and repent of our sins and believe the gospel, this is what we're asking him to make us. If we're repenting of our sins just because we want the monkey of guilt off our back, but we're not pleading with him to make us into this kind of person, then we've not grasped the good news. Are you weary of trying to stay awake in your own strength? Then Jesus says, come to me, all you who are labor, and I will give you rest for your souls. Are you weary of the misery of your sin? Then come to Jesus. Receive his mercy and his forgiveness and receive his love and power to live and stand in his grace every moment through faith. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Repent and believe that your sins are forgiven and that you are a new creation in Christ. This is the good news. So what does this look like practically? Well, it means we must choose between our sin and God. We cannot serve two masters. We'll either hate the one and love the other or despise the one and be devoted to the other. God's grace is not a license to continue in our pet sin. It's actually an invitation to confess it and put it to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's grace is the power to be a faithful servant in God's house. God's grace is the power to gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands if that's what it takes to take up our cross and follow Jesus. I've never experienced God's grace in my life more than the moment of confession, the moment of coming clean, the moment of walking out of the darkness into the light. If you're here this morning, I imagine there's different kinds of people hearing this message this morning. There's, there's those with a weak conscience who are always beating themselves up. And this message might cause you to beat yourself up even more. Please hear. If that's you, please hear that all that makes you clean is coming to Christ in repentance and faith and receiving his mercy. Others, others hear this message and, and, and they know that they're not awake. They're not ready. And the invitation is to come, come to my office if that's what it takes. Go to someone you know and trust and confess that sin. Come into the light. Walk with Christ. And there's others, I'm sure, who when you hear this description of the good and faithful servant, think to yourself, like John Newton, it's one of my favorite quotes, He says, I know 
I'm not what I will be. I know I'm not what I should be. But by the grace of God, I know I'm not what I once was. Mm. That's how we know that God is working in our life and making us more and more like his son by his grace and mercy through faith. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we long to be ready. We long to be awake. We cannot do it in our own strength and so we plead again. We plead again for your grace, for grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. We ask for courage to continue to stay current with you and with those we've sinned against through confession. We ask with, with pleading hands for strength to live as you've called us to live, to not grow weary of doing good. And then, Father, we thank you for this church where we can come and hear the gospel proclaimed, to be reminded of your, of your kindness and your love for sinners like us who desperately need you and who long for the day when we will see your Son come in the clouds like lightning across the sky. And at that moment, he will make all things new and he'll wipe away every tear from our faces. God, we long for that moment in Jesus' name. Amen.